Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Service of Grace Theology segment. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, a listener writes in, and they have a great question. And the question is, what is the difference between obedience and legalism? The New Testament views Christian obedience as a practice of good works. Christians are to be rich in good works. A good deed is one done according to the right standard, God's revealed will, from a right motive, love for God and others, and with the right purpose, the glory of God. Legalism is a distortion of obedience that can never produce good works in this sense. Excuse motive, excuse purpose, seeing good deeds as a way to earn God's favor. It can be arrogant and contemptuous of those who do not labor in the same way. And finally, legalism's self-advancing purpose squeezes humble kindness and compassion out of the heart. Legalism is a distortion of obedience that can never produce good works. Now, in the New Testament, we meet different kinds of legalism. Legalists among the Pharisees thought that because they were descended from Abraham, they were guaranteed approval by God. While paradoxically, they formalized daily observance of the law down to the minute details as a rule of life. And in doing so, they avoided what the rule truly required. Judaizers were legalists who taught Christian believers that they must go on to become Jews by being circumcised and observing the religious calendar and ritual laws. And in this way, gain favor with God. Jesus attacked the legalism of the Pharisees. Paul attacked the legalism of the Judaizers. The Pharisees that opposed Jesus thought of themselves as faithful keepers of the Mosaic law. And yet in emphasizing minor details, they neglected what mattered most according to Matthew 23, 23-24. Their elaborate and even misguided interpretations of the law denied its true spirit and aim as we see in Matthew 15 and uh, Matthew 23. They substituted human tradition for God's authoritative law, binding consciences where God had left them free, as we see in Mark 2. At heart, they were hypocritical, seeing human approval for themselves and condemning others, as we see in Luke 20 and Matthew 6 and Matthew 23. The Judaizers, opposed by Paul, added to the gospel requirements for salvation that obscured and even denied the all-sufficiency of Christ, as we see in Galatians 3 and Galatians 4 and Galatians 5. The idea that there must be additional requirements to the perfect to the perfection of the gospel was a root of their error. Paul opposed this idea no matter who advanced it in Colossians 2, 8-23, because it corrupted the way of salvation. Like Jesus, he would not tolerate those who brought new burdens to lay on the sheep. Legalism erroneously teaches that there must be additional requirements to perfect the gospel. One of Martin Luther's many contributions concerns the Latin word incorretus. This sounds like something a dentist might say as he pokes and prods in the molars, but it's not. It means turned inward. It means that we're naturally selfish, self-centered, and self-absorbed. While all of those are damning enough, the condition being described here has an even more telling effect. 
Because if we're turned inward, we think we can achieve a righteousness entirely on our own. And so we strive, white-knuckling it, to achieve a right standing before God. How many times have you heard someone say that as long as our good deeds outweigh our bad ones, God will welcome us with open arms? How many religious systems are built upon works? How many people feel trapped by their incessant failed attempts to achieve perfection? These are all cases of what we're describing, and it's an epidemic. Understanding this concept of incurvitis so well, Luther said that it's very hard uh, for a man to believe that God is gracious to him. The human heart can't grasp this. If we don't look to grace, we look to ourselves and to our own effort. This is the root of legalism. And now the root of legalism are in sinful and even fallen human heart itself. The heart manifests its sinful condition in our crippling desire to lean on our own merits and our own abilities and the attempt to somehow climb out of the miry pit of sin and to reach all the way to heaven. We find grace to be far too bitter of a pill. It tells us that we can never be good enough, and yet the opposite of legalism also stumbles over grace. The opposite of legalism is antinomianism or lawless living. This Greek word for antinomianism includes the Greek word prefix anti and against in place of and the Greek word nomos or law. Theologically speaking, antinomians run away from any obligation to law or to any divine command. Antinomians are like James Bond. They have a license to sin. But that is a sad lie of antinomianism. It is not liberty, it's license. See, the solution to legalism is not antinomianism. The solution to antinomianism is not legalism. The solution to both is the grace of God. The same thing Luther told us was hard to grasp. So exploring the roots of legalism further will serve not only to expose us, but also to display the brilliant and the stunning contours of its solution, the grace of God. And the clearest expression of legalism in Scripture comes in the stories of the antagonists in the Gospels, the Pharisees. In fact, thanks to them, we have the term pharisaical, defined as hypocritical, censorious self-righteousness. Not one of those three things is a good thing, and yet taken together, we get a really bad thing. Another definition informs us that the term pharisaical means an extreme commitment to religious observance and even ritual apart from belief in Christ. Both aspects of the definition are critical. The first is the striving and even the white-knuckling it to heaven. The second part takes us back to Luther's quote and to our aversion to the grace of God. It just can't be as simple as belief. Christ confronted this tendency to be pharisaical on every page in the Gospels. And one such place is the parable concerning the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, which says, I thank you that I am not like other men, the Pharisee prays. That is self-righteousness. The Pharisee further protests that, that, that the fasts and the tithes, that is the external obedience. And in the parable, the Pharisee is contrasted with the tax collector. The tax collector simply prays, Be merciful to me, a sinner. There is a cry for grace. A few verses later, the rich ruler comes to Christ. He too plays the part of a Pharisee. He too protests his self-righteousness. And it seems that everywhere Christ goes, he meets Pharisees. Ironically, the Pharisees, though they thought otherwise, they were not truly concerned with the law of God. They actually set up a whole system of regulations to enable them to get around the law of God. They were experts at setting up loopholes. They had a man-made system of law to avoid the divine law, and they led Israel astray. 
And hence we see why Jesus so vehemently opposed them and called them the false shepherds of Israel, as in a series of woes unleashed in Matthew 23. In fact, before his conversion also, Paul was one such false shepherd. Paul was a consummate legalist. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find another person so zealous for the law. He had first-hand knowledge when he declared in Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. He had first-hand knowledge when he lamented in Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Paul also had a first-hand experience with the grace of God, and so he joyfully declared in Galatians 4.4-5, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. It's impossible to study Paul without coming in contact with grace. And so we read in Romans 5 that all of our striving comes to an end in Christ. We can only attain peace with God by faith in Christ, the only one who kept the law perfectly. In fact, as we turn to the pages of church history, we see the church's focus on grace eclipsed by legalism. This happened on a grand scale after the controversy between Augustine and Pelagius, and in the aftermath of that controversy, the seeds were sown that would eventually result in a full-blown system of works as the medieval church's view of salvation. A key here is a shift from the biblical teaching of repentance to the church's teaching of penance. Repentance is illustrated by the tax collector in the In Christ parable. The repentant one simply prays, have mercy on me as sinner. Penance is a list of things to do that will supposedly get you right with the Lord. By Luther's time, the list had grown rather long. And so Luther vainly tried to reach God by being a good monk. Luther even went to, into the monastery as a sorely misguided attempt to please God. Only one thing resulted from Luther's ardent work. He found himself even further from God and mired in anxiety. Later in life, he even suffered physically from his earlier attempts to achieve righteousness by these efforts. But in his grace, God reached down to Luther. We can't grasp grace naturally. That's why grace must grasp us. One branch of the Reformation initially celebrated this glorious truth of the grace of God and then departed from it. In Zurich, there arose the Anabaptists. In addition to their other beliefs, they advocated for withdrawing from society and living in segregated communities. They would soon develop a dress code and rules for how to live and how they would work. They called themselves the Mennonites as they followed the teachings of Menno Simmons, who lived from 1496 to 1561. In 1693, Jacob Amun broke from the Mennonites over the practice of the ban, shunning those who would transgress the rules. His followers would be known as the Amish. They went beyond the gospel to regulations and traditions. And the same dynamic occurred in the 20th century in various pockets of fundamentalism. As Christ confronted legalism on nearly every page of the Gospels, you can find legalism throughout the pages of church history. And so, too, you can find the opposite. Antinomianism, lawless living, thrived during the Reformation. It also thrived and continues to thrive amid pockets of fundamentalism. Sadly, we can tell the whole story of uh, of mankind's misguided quest for God by tracing these ever-present threads of legalism and antinomianism. Now, the opposite of legalism is not license, it's liberty. Luther called Galatians his Katie. He said, I am betrothed to it, he would say. That is a compliment that goes two ways. First, it reflects how deeply Luther loved his wife, who was named Katie. And it reflects how deeply he loved the message of the Galatians. Galatians, he called it the epistle of liberty. And in our attempt to uncover the roots of legalism, we must ultimately look 
at our own lives. Incurvitis keeps us from seeing our true need. It tricks us into thinking that we're basically good and we only need to be better. Legalism is truly damning and rather damaging. Legalism can even catapult us to the opposite, to a life of license, to a life ultimately of rebellion. And the reality is, is that we are not good. How ironic that part of the good news of the gospel is that we're not good at all. And because we're not good, we could never look to ourselves. We must look to the one born of a woman, born under the law. He is the only righteous one. He kept the law and bore its punishment for those who trust in him. God pours out his grace freely upon us because of what Christ has done for us. Christ says free as Galatians 5.1 says. And we can still say a few more things as we wrap up this episode. Human beings are naturally religious, and part of that religious impulse involves following human rituals and religious rituals. In most of the world's religions, central importance is placed on the proper following of rituals, while less attention is devoted to right belief. Orthopraxy, rightly following regulations and rituals, tends to take place or precedence over orthodoxy, right beliefs, and right theology. And yet, biblical Christianity stands out as the exception. Various regulations and rituals have been important in church history, but Christian theology tends to focus more on getting our beliefs right than on enforcing adherence to a set of of religious rituals. And yet, God's people have sometimes elevated external conformity over heart-motivated belief and obedience. King Saul committed that error when he disobeyed God's command to annihilate the Amalekites and their livestock in 1 Samuel 15. He preserved the Amalekite king, Agag, and several of the best Amalekite animals. And when Samuel came to the forefront, Saul, for his disobedience, Saul explained that he spared the animals so as to make the back sacrifice to the Lord. Saul was so focused on the external letter of the law, giving the best animal for sacrifices, that he violated the Lord's explicit will for dealing with the Amalekites. For this blatant disobedience, God rejected him as Israel's king, pledging to give him another throne to another. Now, it's important to get the externals right, and the intent is to be faithful in the rituals. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. When Samuel said under God's inspiration that obedience is better than sacrifice in 1 Samuel 15, 22-23, he did not mean that the sacrificial system was optional or that offering quality sacrifices was unimportant. His point was that we cannot offer a proper sacrifice if we're not intent on following all of the commandments of God. Saul lacked that intent, and so he thought it'd be fine if he gave the choicest Amalekite animals to the Lord, even when that entailed disregarding what God had told him to do. And note also that the statement in 1 Samuel 15, 10 through 35, that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king, even as the text also says that God does not have regret in 1 Samuel 15, 29 and 1 Samuel 15, 35. We have no contradiction. Rather, the point is, is that God's regret or change of mind is not the same thing that we experience as human beings. God does not literally change his mind. He did not fail to anticipate what would happen with Saul. The author is speaking of the Lord in a human way to help us understand that he was angry with Saul. 
And so going through the motions, even if they're the right motions, is insufficient to please the Lord. He does not want us to, uh, he does not want our sacrifices if we do not intend to obey him in other matters. And it's vital that we strive to do what the Lord wants us to do in all things and that we quickly and we truly repent when we have failed to obey him. This is why Calvin and Luther Specifically, even Calvin said that the Christian life is one of repentance and why when Luther confronted the Catholic Church, the very first point in his 95 thesis was that the Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance. And that is why we need to repent. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, I, as Charles Spurgeon said, I have a great need of Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. And even Newton, following Spurgeon, said that when we understand that I have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for my need, we are, as Newton said, in that way, well-instructed Christians. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.